This episode of Ghost Stories is brought to you by Satrix, the leading provider of index tracking solutions in South Africa and a proud partner of Ghostmail. With no minimums and easy, low-cost access to local and global products via the Satrix Now online investment platform, everyone can own the market. Visit satrix.co.za for more information. Welcome to this episode of Ghost Stories. This is the second one we are doing with a professional from Satrix, and I'm really excited about it. The last one you might have listened to was with Sia Bulela Nomoyi, and we spoke at length about China. Very interesting podcast. We spoke about its impact on the South African economy, how important the country actually is in our lives, uh, the relationship with many of our listed companies. Great show. Go back and check it out. Today, we are doing something completely different. We've got Nico Katzka on the call. And Nico, welcome and thank you so much for making time. I know you're a busy man. Thank you, Ghost. And uh, great to join you on your podcast. Yeah, thank you. So Nico wrote a really cool article that we put out in Ghostmail uh, probably a few weeks ago now, just basically a review of you know, 2022, which was a pretty unhappy time in the markets for just, just about everyone, unless you were a Glencore shareholder, basically. I think you had a bad time, based on what I saw at Glencore yesterday. And it was a really great article. And, and what we'll do today is we'll touch on some of those points, but obviously we'll we'll definitely add to that narrative and just tap into uh, Nico's experience and, and lots and lots of sort of technical knowledge. I mean, Nico, actually, before we get into it, I'm quite keen for you to introduce yourself, not least of all because you do some stuff outside of Satrix as well, which I think is very interesting. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a lecturer at Salambosch as well, so I do that part-time. Um, so if any of my students are listening, uh, hello. I teach their uh, data science, which is just a, I suppose, a catchphrase where in my day we just called it statistics, but today we, we like to name it a bit more sexy and call it data science. And then I also teach a course on uh, in quantitative finance to the master students. So very much still involved from an academic perspective and also pursuing my PhD still. So yeah, keep sort of a foot in uh, just a pinky, if you like, in academia, just just to keep those pipes oiled as well. Very nice. Listen, no pressure. And before we get into what you do at Satrix, but uh, I'm just saying my old university vits uh, prescribes ghost mail for the Manfin students. You know, they have to do it. It even gets used in exams. Not putting any pressure on Stellenbosch here, but I mean, it's not the worst resource for students if you ever want to mention it in one of your AI, cloud solutions, big data you know, what other buzzwords are we missing here? <laughs> One of those lectures. Listen, it'll be remiss of me not to uh, demand them to this as uh, prescribed material. So. Well, that's my thinking. Moving, moving on from academia, <laughs> would you like to tell us uh, what you do at Satrix? Yeah, so at Satrix, I'm the head of Portfolio Solutions, which uh, is a title that, that might be might seem vague initially. What it means is I'm basically spearing a lot of our research into product development, uh, specifically on the factor style, so style investments. Um, and this includes momentum, value, quality. We have a multi-factor product called SmartCore as well. So doing a lot of research in that space and then also working with clients to design bespoke solutions and doing research on sustainability as well, fund efficiency, what we can do in terms of trading and the like. So work closely with the PMs, work closely with our chief investment officer as well, present at conferences, do write-ups, try my best. Sounds like you tried pretty well. That's a very interesting role. And I suspect that down the line, we will do a podcast on those different styles because that's basically a podcast in and of itself. There's some really interesting stuff and I'll learn a lot from that. So I'm excited about that. But, you know, on this one, what we're going to do is go a little bit more sort of high level, a little bit more, you know, markets before we get into style. So, you know, we're recording this shortly after Valentine's Day. We are in the month of love or even in the week of love here. There was nothing to love in the markets in 2022, as I say, unless you did some really good stock picking. And then you probably still got lucky because chances are if you picked a decent portfolio, 
you know, half of those stocks probably really hurt you. Unless you had a deposit in a bank account, you pretty much got hurt. So for those who are still licking their wounds and figuring out what on earth happened to them <laughs> in 2022, you know, how would you explain that phenomenon and what actually happened? Yeah, it's one of those few years where keeping the money under the mattress was a great investment. So indeed, as you said, 2022 was an absolute roller coaster. The markets were mostly sharply down and there was almost nowhere to hide. And I think this is what sets 2022 apart a bit is that typically what you see is that if there's an equity market correction, at least you see a rally in bonds or gold or some other defensive assets or vice versa. Really, 2022 was unique in the sense that nearly all asset uh, markets corrected sharply downward. You know, and, and, and so the, the immediate question is why, and you mentioned the, the piece we wrote that summarized 2022, and absolutely, you know, if your listeners want to read that and get in touch, uh, happy to, to always expand on what, what I mentioned in there. But really, it all started off with Russia invading Ukraine, um, which certainly set off, set off a a series of events, ultimately culminating in sharp price index rises, so CPI massively increased, the likes of which we've not seen in developed markets since the 1980s, truth be told. Now, a casual observer would probably point to this spooking markets and investors you know, fleeing to safety in droves, which put down the price of risky assets, i.e. Russia invades Ukraine, investors are spooked, but there's actually much more to it. In fact, we saw that your both your defensive and risky assets lost significant value in 2022. So what really transpired is the, the tail that wagged this global dog, if you like, was in fact inflation. Now, Russia's ill-considered terror campaign in, in Ukraine really just served to cause prices to rise dramatically. I mean, energy prices in Europe skyrocketed, foodstuffs, particularly grain, oil and the like, um, and even goods and services really across the board um, became significantly more expensive. Now, why this is important is it prompted the U.S. Federal Reserve Bank, so our equivalent of the Saab in the U.S., to act very decisively in containing the threat of inflation in a remarkably aggressive way. In fact, your listeners might know that the way central banks typically reduce inflationary pressures is by raising interest rates, and particularly on the short end of the yield curve, where they have a direct influence. Right. So in South Africa, this we our equivalent to this is the the repo rate, while in the U.S. we call this the federal funds rate. Now, many pointed to the fact that last year, if you recall, that the Fed was overzealous in their response to curb inflation in 2022, um, and this caused panic in the market. Certainly. Now, we can get to exactly why a bit later, but to get a sense of just how strongly the Fed pivoted from its previous trajectories in response to inflation, you have to consider that at the start of 2022, the Fed's fund rate, you know, their repo rate equivalent, was at uh, below uh, 25 basis points, right? 0.25%. By the end of the year, by the end of last year, it saw whopping, it sat at a whopping 4.5%. So you literally have to go back to the 1970s for any reference to such a sharp tightening cycle. Um, and what made this even more striking was that the Fed did not pivot in response to market turmoil because markets reacted sharply to this, but but the Fed didn't pivot, as as was the case in 2020 after a comparatively short tightening stint uh, was brought to a halt by the global pandemic. So the Fed, in a sense, showed their hand there that they do consider market turmoil very carefully. And if that, um, you know, that that would should have a strong bearing on their propensity to, to tighten. Now, this continued assault on inflation was surprising, uh, especially considering that, if you recall, in 2021, as inflation started to creep higher, the prevailing narrative was that it was transitory, if you remember, which just means it's sort of inflation passing. You know, it's it's on a, uh, you're standing on a train terminal, it's just passing, it's going by. And and at the time, the, the economy was quite fragile and central banks were, were careful to act. But as 2022 rolled by, inflation remained persistently high 
and the Fed sat back. But as Russia kicked off its, its special operation, inflation started to rise sharply, and that's when the Fed pounced. And this, this is specifically what rattled markets, uh, specifically growth, growth sectors, um, and those that took full advantage of you know, the past historically low interest rates um, and general market belief that monetary conditions will remain tight for long. So this, this is really what kicked off the pain that we saw in 2022. And the growth stocks took such a knock because if you've ever built a discounted cash flow, if you know anything about valuations, you'll know it's, it's mainly just sort of the present value of what people think this company will make in future. And the problem with growth stocks is most of the money is coming later. And so those companies are way more sensitive to a change in the discount rate, the interest rates. And that's, that's one of the reasons why growth stocks got so hammered versus, you know, what I'll call boring value stocks, inverted commas and very tongue in cheek. You know, if you're buying an industrial business and you know what the cash flows will be next year, the impact on that is way less severe than if you are buying some kind of biotech stock, which will hopefully make a profit in you know 2043. Correct, correct. So to your point, growth stocks. What growth really means, and I, I think I think it's 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 maybe important just to make the distinction between growth and value, uh, with the the points that you raise. And this is a classic dichotomy, right? So students learn this day one in finance, and and still it's a prevailing narrative out there that we can broadly bucket companies into value and growth. Especially at Vitz, eh, Nico, where they read Grossmail. That's where they learn it day one, especially. Yeah, 100%. They, they, they'll, they'll know these concepts very well. But trust me, my students as well. <laughs> but no. So the difference between growth and value, and I think it's oftentimes misunderstood. And you have to carefully, you, you have to keep your wits about you when, you when you talk about growth and value stocks. Because in fact, they are very similar. You might say that growth and value as a concept is joined at the hip. Value means contemporaneous value. So you look at the price today relative to past earnings. Growth simply means you look at the price today relative to future earnings or future earnings potential. So in other words, value is an accounting factor, right? So we, we say, oh, this, this company is cheap. Um, and so this, the, you know, based on current fundamentals. But growth is a bit more fuzzy because you're looking ahead and you're saying, ah, this company has great potential to grow its earnings in future. Now, to, to your point, exactly right. You have to discount those future earnings to today. And the, the interest rate that you use to discount that is a critical input, right? So if interest rates start to rise sharply, that means tomorrow's earnings in today's prices looks less attractive. And so immediately the sectors that gets hit the hardest would be your sectors that are your traditional growth sectors. So in other words, growth and value are joined at the hip because both are effectively value proxies. Value just looks at the today where growth looks at value tomorrow. and so. Also tied to that is in an environment where inflation starts to rise sharply, the problem is your opportunity cost. In other words, what you can do with your money other than invest in a growth stock rises. So the two combined is a, is a double whammy for growth sectors because now you, your, your opportunity cost, in other words, your safe bonds that, that are yielding in the US 5%, I mean, that becomes an attractive alternative, 6% for, for that matter. So why would you invest, take the risk and invest in a company that only has the promise of earnings potential but might not deliver? So as inflation rises and interest rates rises, they compound to really cause pain in growth sectors. Nick, I can see we're going to have a lot of fun on these podcasts because uh, there is so much to talk about. I mean, one of the other issues with value and growth is how a lot of these tech companies, they basically expense all their R&D. So it just goes through the income statement and it's gone. <laughs> A lot of the companies that tend to fall into the value bucket have assets that actually stick around on the balance sheet. So you can use stuff like net asset value when you look at these things. And there's a lot of debate around whether or not it's correct, you know, that all this R&D in these tech companies actually gets expensed. You know, is it giving the balance sheet a proper 
a proper view. So there's going to be a lot for us to, I think there's going to be a lot for us to unpack in, uh, in, in months to come. Although I think we need to try and avoid getting too sidetracked today. It's something I'm very bad at on a good day. So I'm going to pull us back to a little bit of a macro, not necessarily a macro chat, but just some of these principles. So we keep hearing terms like VIX and DXY or Dixie, as I'll read it conveniently for my point that these sound like country music bands. One is a volatility index. The other one measures the dollar against a basket of global currencies. And these are actually extremely useful metrics that you know experienced people in the market use to try and figure out what's going to happen and where we are in a cycle. Why are these things useful ultimately and are they useful even for south african investors who like to think that the us is far away yeah so so let's start with the vix vix is a great indicator of perceived market risk in fact it is often called the market's fear gauge and you can think of it very simple so without getting technical we can think of it very simply as the sum of 30-day insurance policies or premiums on the s p 500 so if we look at the s p 500 and we sum all the 30-day ahead insurance uh, uh, policies being written, then the premium that the market is willing to pay, uh, which is the right from call and put options, that premium gives you an indication of the price that is required to secure your investment. Um, so simply put, and, and why this is useful, think of it this way. Um, if we look at house insurance premiums over time, we should be able to deduce from that the market's expectations of, for example, there being a fire in the area. Right. So shortly after there was devastating fires in Eisenach, you'd expect insurance premiums on houses to increase. So in a similar vein, if we expect there to be market turmoil uh, in future, we expect those premiums on these options and calls to actually increase. And VIX specifically looks at the S&P 500. It gives you a real time. And because of the liquidity in that market, it gives you a real time premium for stability in the largest equity market. So yes, you know, S&P 500 is not a perfect bellwether for uh, volatility in our local market. But of course, you know, knowing the size of the US and, and, and the, the uh, positioning in, in global trade and the like, um, of course, an indication of stability in that market is key. The other metric that you mentioned, the Dixie or DXY, this is simply the dollar strength index. Now, the dollar strength index is also an interesting index to look at because while the VIX gives you a sense of market's fear or a fear gauge, the strength of the dollar relative to other currencies also gives you an indication of how markets are positioning their portfolios in terms of either being risk on or risk off. So what this simply tells you, if both the VIX rise as well as the dollar index rises in strength, so the dollar is getting stronger and, market, and the VIX is rising, the culmination of this tells you that the market is slightly on edge. Right? So they're requiring a high premium to be invested in risky assets like equities and also because the dollar, the dollar is strengthening because, you know, because of its reserve currency status. So both of those indices really climbed steeply in 2022, which shows you that the market was on edge. Right? And what I like about these indicators uh, and why your listeners should, should keep an eye on these is this is where the markets are putting their money where their mouth is, right? This is a, these are derived numbers. In other words, we're not polling economists and asking people how they look at the economy. This is actually how they price things. So it's very useful indicators. Yeah, it really is. Absolutely. And that dollar strength played havoc with a whole bunch of companies last year. So especially, you know, these sort of US-based global businesses, but their cost base sits in the US. Suddenly that money you make from people subscribing to your service out in an emerging market somewhere is not so exciting anymore in dollars. And yet your software engineers sitting in California are still demanding a you know a fortune from you. So that strong dollar, that's, that's another reason why growth stocks actually took a knock last year. 
absolutely it definitely plays into the theme or, or the pain of, of, of growth sectors you're 100 right there and it's making the us less competitive from a from a cost perspective mm. certainly absolutely and another one that keeps disappointing in the strong dollar is part of it is gold which i recently gave up on there was a pretty good rally in local gold miners over a few months and a rare example of actually getting the timing right i managed to get out of it decently near the top and i'm so glad i did because now gold has rolled over again actually a lot of the gold miners released results yesterday it was a crazy day on sends i made a joke in ghost mail drd gold's earnings are up because they earned more interest on their cash <laughs> and goldfield's earnings are up because they earned a break fee on the yamana yeah. deal if you actually look at the core business it's not going so well so <laughs> you know gold has been hurting investors it really has i mean surely recent times are some of the textbook situations under which gold should do well you know we've had geopolitical turmoil we've had all this kind of stuff and yet gold has not really done what it's supposed to do has it you know and i want to commend you it was a great article by the way the gold is is such an interesting interesting beast because you know the age old wisdom in investments is to hold some part of your portfolio in gold right because it is a, a hedge against turmoil and it's a great inflation hedge now, to your point, 2022 was textbook. We saw tremendous, almost historically high levels of turmoil in all asset markets, and inflation rose the most that it did since the 1970s. Yet, if you look at gold's performance in US dollars, it was flat for 2022. That's bizarre, right? So, and now what's interesting as well is since Russia invaded Ukraine, in fact, the value of gold has slid for the remainder of 2022. And that's extremely puzzling because to your point, if you had a perfect looking glass in 2022, at the start of 2022, and I told you how the year was going to transpire, you'd exactly think gold is a great investment, yet that absolutely didn't return anything. And so the question is, is gold still relevant in a, in a society today where you have digital gold in, in, in cryptocurrencies, although that's highly debatable and I, I, I uh, you know, that that's maybe for another day, we can unpack that. But you have other alternative assets, uh, safe assets. And then you also have um, assets that actually provide you some yield. And so if you look at the current economic environment, where all of a sudden, you're seeing global yields are increasing tremendously. So US government bonds are paying you something, where in the past, they paid you nothing. And so in an environment where you have safe assets that pay you nothing, because remember, gold pays you nothing, there's no dividend, there's no coupon, there's nothing. And so an environment previously where safe assets are not paying you anything, then gold shine, you know, looks uh, attractive. But in an environment where all of a sudden other safe assets are paying you something, kind of looking at gold and you're going, wow, this, I'm not getting anything for this. And if markets start to pivot and start to, to treat other similar digital forms of gold as the same thing, well, you might actually see some pain for, for gold going ahead. You know, this soft, brittle uh, metal that we take out of the ground and just put back into the ground ultimately over the long term. I'm not sure if, if, if that's necessarily something you should allocate a large part of your portfolio to. Yeah, I've learned with gold. I mean, I, <laughs> when it was quite clear that inflation was not going to go away, I, I was like early on the gold story. And I thought, I was very proud of myself. I thought, okay, this is going to work. You know, this was long before Russia. Then when that happened, I mean, I never celebrated anything like that happening. But I thought to myself, okay, having some money in gold is probably not a bad thing. Well, you know, how, how wrong I was. And I think the yield point that you've touched on is exactly the reason, you know, gold pays you nothing. If you go and buy shares in British American tobacco, you get a yield and many other stocks that are exactly like that, you know, and this concept of defensive stocks is something I've been writing about a lot recently, especially in my FM column, actually every week that that's been something I've covered a lot because people have been hurt by what they think is a defensive stock because it looks defensive, but it's not. I mean, even a grocery retailer is not defensive. 
some parts of their business are sure you know bread and milk is always going to be defensive but actually what they really want to sell you is the fancy imported cheese and that's not defensive and if they're not selling you the cheese anymore gross margins going the wrong direction and suddenly that price earnings multiple of 25 doesn't look so great anymore when uh, this thing's going sideways very hard to define something as defensive it's incredibly hard and if anything uh, probably the, the the biggest lesson that we learned from 2022 is it's it's really hard to hide and during during times of market turmoil, it's very hard to find assets that actually pay um, consistently uh, and, and and provide that hedge. It, it's 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 harder than you might think. I'm always very like honest with people when they ask me these sort of questions, and I just say, listen, do you have, you know, do you have a home loan? Because if you do have a home loan, every additional rand you put into that home loan is an after-tax guaranteed return of right now about ten and a half percent. You are probably not going to beat that in the market right now. And if you do, you're going to get lucky. And on a risk-adjusted basis, you've got no chance because that's a guaranteed return after tax. People forget that. So in these times, it's, you know, just get the debt down is <laughs> probably one of the safer things to do. That's like the place to hide. You know, your best defensive asset is probably your home loan. If you don't have one of those, obviously it's a different story. But people tend to forget that, I think. Absolutely. And I mean, the question, the follow-up to that would be, well, what, what are interest rates going to uh, do in the future? Because... If it's going to keep rising, of course, that, mm. that means your urgency in paying off uh, loans, specifically bad loans, right? So home loans, you can argue, uh, can be a good loan and, and mm. this sort of household leverage that, that might, you know, in, in certain circumstances, you might uh, consider that as a good loan and not one that you want to pay off necessarily quickly. You, have, you might have alternatives to do with that. But certainly if rates keep rising, that's that's definitely something to keep an eye out for and and try to uh, reduce your leverage try to reduce your exposure to to debt as much as possible i can't agree more with you there and and so that that is something we can discuss is what, what's going to happen with interest rates in the future yeah absolutely i think you know maybe before we get more into rates just to sort of round out the inflation conversation you know we've we've had a lot of lessons learned from last year i've learned a lot of lessons i must say gold miners don't work in an inflationary time unless the gold price does really well because all that happens is their mining costs go up and the gold price goes sideways and uh, that does not help so you know lessons about investing in inflation i suppose you know what do you think some of the key like what will stick with you from the last year, what would you share with someone if they said, you know, what have we really learned about investing in a high inflation environment other than putting your money under the mattress, which also doesn't really work, right? Because it becomes worth a lot less a year later. What have we learned from this? So the first thing that I'd say is that we are seeing attractive real yields all of a sudden, um, both locally. I mean, in South Africa, you're getting tremendous returns from, from government bonds. Um, but you're also actually seeing a, a high return in, in, in developed market yields all of a sudden. And I say this all of a sudden because really you have to go back to the pre-global financial crisis period to a point where we could actually treat global yields as paying you something and not nothing. So immediately what springs to mind is you have, uh, you have yields and, and real yields in South Africa being paid. Um, uh, although, you know, if you look at it, your investments from a 10 to 15 year period, I would not argue that you should be allocating the majority of your portfolio to yields. Of course, because in truth, in the long term, your yield should sh simply be giving you a compensation for inflation and a slight premium. It should not really be paying you uh, much over over 10 years. Right. And so this is where equities and other risky assets actually pay you a premium or should pay you a premium over time. If you think about it, a company, if prices rise, well, there's a company that benefits from that on a nominal basis. Right. Because some someone is selling the goods that you are buying and paying a higher price for. And so that tends to be companies. 
right? So over the long term, it for me, it depends. Are we looking at inflation uh, over the next year or are we looking at inflation over 10 years? And if we're looking over over a longer period, I do think you have to have some exposure to risky assets to actually, to actually grow wealth, as opposed to just maintaining uh, status quo, if you like, by uh, using government bonds. But in the short term, definitely, you, you're getting attractive yields. The lesson that I learned, and I, I think you would agree with this uh, in 2022 with inflation, I, th I think there's two very, very important lessons. The first is in growth sectors specifically, and when, when I say growth sectors, I mean, in, in reality, you have to look at the NASDAQ, the S&P 500, even the MSCI World Index. If you look, go look at their constituents, the MSCI ACQUI is two-thirds U.S., and of that U.S. component, um, it's close to half is tech stocks and, and derivatives. So sometimes they call, uh, you know, certain tech companies, which is de facto tech, bucket that into the consumer goods or consumer services. So uh, so the tech component of the S&P 500, the MSCI World Index, is enormous, the growth component, right? That's a very large component of your investment in those indices. So the lesson that I learned from 2022 is be careful. Those large indices have a very, very large growth component. And inflation hurts growth. Infl inflation really, really hurts growth because your alternatives in yield is becoming more attractive. So your opportunity cost rises. So anything that 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 has a growth component to it, where you're selling an idea or you're selling potential, well, markets have a way of becoming impatient with high potential but low cash flow. Um, so if you're not able to turn your your potential into cash flow in the immediate future, then the markets view, doesn't view that kindly when inflation starts to rise. It remains to be seen, though, whether in a in a transitory high or, or in a in a high inflation environment. So let's say inflation starts to peak and it stays at higher elevated levels. Maybe markets come back and 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 have a greater love for for growth. But certainly, when inflation starts to rise, go up. Well, this is this is certainly a time where it might be wise to consider diversifying into assets that are not as exposed to growth. And this would include EM equities, this would include, include yields, and also other traditional non-yielding assets like gold or other commodities that, that might provide you some upside. But certainly don't, don't bank on that necessarily being the case in an inflationary environment, as you pointed out. Yeah, you got to be careful, right? You buy this World Equity Index and you think, right, so I'm super diversified. Actually, 5% of your money is in Apple and Microsoft. You know, maybe it's not far. I mean, it's it's not far off. I remember looking at some of these things. That's that's really not far off from the truth, you know. And then you you sitting in these growth stocks, which look, I don't think Apple and Microsoft are bad shots long term at all. But you've got to know what you're buying, and you've got to know when or try to know when to actually buy these things. So, yeah, it is super interesting to understand these kind of look through exposures and how they all how they all play out. And again, we keep touching on this value versus growth thing, which has really been the theme of the markets recently. I mean, value had a horrible few years. And then in 2021, I think that was the worst imaginable. You know, you could spot the value investor if you saw a very sad looking person considering burning their CFA books and giving up on the world because this, is, this all just doesn't make sense, you know? And suddenly in 2022, the story changed dramatically because, of course, in 2021, everyone was an expert, right? Every new investor, this isn't difficult. I can make 50% in a year. You just buy these tech names and, you know, and away you go. Uh, it turns out it's not so easy, uh, which a lot of people have learned the hard way. And sadly, a lot of people have now run away from the markets and gone, oh, no, not for me. Thankfully, a percentage have stuck around and gone, okay, this is clearly harder than I thought. I want to learn about this. And kudos to you. If you're listening to this, you're probably in that bucket. 
And uh, that's that's the right decision because long term, this is what you want to be doing, um, as hard as it is. But Nico, what's your view on sort of the relative outlook for value versus growth? You know, this year, and obviously this kind of ties into a bit of an interest rates question as well. I think. So, well, to your point, I mean, it was it was devastating in 2022, but year to date, I mean, if we just look at uh, uh, up to yesterday, I mean, the MSCI World Index is up eight percent, uh, Acqui is up eight percent in dollars. So there's been a massive rebound in equities. And in fact, if you look at it closely, what, what's been driving this rally are the fangs, the tech stocks and the tech names and the growth industry. So the question now is that, that investors should be asking themselves is, will this tech rally continue? And what is the outlook going forward? If we look at 2022, at the end of 2022, the, the difference between value and growth, uh, the spread was the highest it's, it's been in, uh, you know, in, in, since before the global financial crisis. I mean, it's, it's value stocks have, have performed tremendously, not only globally, but in South Africa as well. In fact, just, just do yourself a favor and, and, and look at the top performing funds last year. They all had value in their name, right? And our value indices uh, at Satrix are Divi, Index, Rafi. I mean, these, these ETFs did extremely well last year. So value did very well. Um, and for the reasons we, we spoke about, you know, these boring old companies that, that you know, do their thing and tick by, I mean, they all of a sudden start to look attractive when uh, you know, everything else is, is, is falling because they, they have the ability to generate earnings where a tech company has the potential, but that potential is still, is still debatable whether that will actually uh, transpire. Now, for me, the question is, if, if we want to know what growth will keep, keep doing and value keep doing this year, we have to ask the question, what will interest rates likely do globally as well as, of course, in South Africa? So this week, uh, U.S. inflation and job numbers came out. I don't know if you saw, but it was quite big news. And the markets were somewhat surprised, to, to say the least. So CPI, uh, U.S. inflation, slowed down once again, but by less than expected. Now, this always becomes odd, right? So this inflation slows down, but less than expected. And that's now news, right? So the U.S. economy is creating jobs at an incredible pace. In fact, the problem currently with the U.S. labor market, I'd say, is that there is no problem with the U.S. labor market. You know, in the face of sharp rising interest rates from the Fed, drop, job growth has not slowed at all. And so the expectation is that the Fed will likely, will be unlikely, in fact, to, to pivot from its tightening cycle that we saw last year. Now, I looked at the numbers earlier this year, and the markets are pricing in the Fed to raise rates to 5.5% by June, over 50%. So the odds by the market pricing is over 50% that in, uh, interest rates will rise in the US by 1% by June. Again, you know, this is contra- uh, what the Fed has been saying this week, but that is where the market is pricing it. So it, it seems almost as though the market is starting to price in the current interest rate levels as being neutral, if you like. So in other words, it's not too high and they must, there's sort of this pressure on the Fed to reduce it. In fact, the market is saying interest rates can stay at this level for longer. Now, this could probably re be referred to then as a no landing scenario. You know, there was a, a soft landing and a hard landing, and this was all the debate and rage in the market. But we might actually be going to a no landing scenario where the US economy just keeps buying. Now, if the Fed learned anything from the 1970s, it is that don't give up too early on monetary tightening. Um, and clearly, the U.S. economy's pace of growth is not suggesting that they should give up. No, on the contrary. Um, now, for those listeners, and I'm, I'm always acutely aware when I discuss the Fed in the U.S., some might question why there's so much focus on the Fed when we're talking about value versus growth. Remember that it isn't mindless musings on a single single country's policy decisions. Not at all. Uh, printing the reserve currency. Um, and being the largest cog in the global trade and policy wheel means the Fed provides us with a guide on policy expectations for the rest of the world. 
In fact, just look at our own Saab. I mean, they've tightened in response, and, and, and you can say they've been in lockstep with the Fed in recent quarters, uh, looking specifically to protect the integrity and the value of the RAND. So, you know, they're very much an indicator of what's going to happen with other central banks globally. And that has a massive impact on trade, on the valuation of assets globally. So with that being said, I do think that inflation, while it is cooling down, I don't think we're going to see a, a, a massive slowdown in the interim. And if that is the case, if inflation remains high and interest rates remain high, we might see that this, this short-term recovery we saw now in January and February of this year in, in tech stocks might actually be a bit premature. I think there might be some more pain there uh, you know, going forward. But ultimately, if you're invested for three to five years, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change my allocation dramatically based on the short term. And that's always for me the question, right? Is if you're investing for the long term, I wouldn't change my or pivot too dramatically based on, on current fundamentals because that has a way of changing quite abruptly. And certainly if you look at the VIX and those other indices we discussed earlier, it does seem like the market is quite uncertain at the moment. And it's not about timing the market at all. It's about time in the market. So keep plugging away at building wealth, at investing and, and, and focus on the long term. But I do think that the, the era we had from 2010 to 2020 of growth just performing exceptionally well and value remaining in the doldrums, I do think that that has come to an end to a large extent. Uh, I wouldn't write off growth or tech or, or you know any of those high potential sectors. I wouldn't write them off. But I'll be surprised if we see another uh, you know, global rally, the likes of which we saw from 2010 to 2020. At the end of the day, the markets are really just a function of what's going on in the world, right? I mean, that decade you talk of was defined by cloud computing and growth, which suddenly just arrived, you know, software as a service models with subscription fees. You're not going and buying software from a, your local store anymore. You're subscribing for it online. People forget how much that changed the world. Smartphones are really only the last 15 years. I think the first iPhone was unveiled in 2007. People forget that. And that makes a huge difference actually to what happened in the world. And commodities were depressed. Whereas now we've got into, you know, this kind of upcycle for not all commodities, you know, just ask anyone who owns platinum um, today, for example. But, um, you know, a lot of the commodities have done really well and will continue to do well. And then that becomes good for emerging markets. That becomes good for value type plays because of the downstream impact of this. When all of growth is doing well, the whole sector just does well. You know, if Microsoft is having an amazing decade, the knock-on into all the other growth companies is huge, actually. And it goes all the way down. Venture capitalists are then bringing new companies to market because they feel good about investing at Series A level because they think their Series C and their eventual IPO will be promising. You know, if that's looking ugly and interest rates are high, I know for a fact in venture capital at the moment, it's much harder to get your hands on money. And that actually stifles innovation and ultimately stifles growth. You know, so there's there's huge mega themes and sitting underneath these style swings over a decade long period. Obviously, they're always easier in hindsight, clearly, like everything in this world. And the next one for the next decade, which has the potential to be interested in tech is probably artificial intelligence. That's certainly where Microsoft is going to be handing its hat as cloud is starting to slow down a bit. So, you know, there's these huge underlying themes in the market. That's what makes them so fun, right? Absolutely. I mean, look, I'm, I'm chatting to an AI bot now as we speak, right? The ghost. I mean, it's not even a real person. And how, how tremendous a job are you doing? I, exp I explained to you at the start, it's, it's actually my cat. My cat is the <laughs> finance ghost. Um, I'm just, you know, I just work here. But that technology, I mean, that's, that's an incredibly disruptive technology. You know, I, I read 
earlier this week that Microsoft is now, you know, if, if you recall, they also have a search engine called Bing. I don't know how many of your listeners use it. I always, I always joke that people only use Bing by mistake when they open Edge instead of Chrome. Although I think that will change potentially, but that is what, how it's been for most people. Or, or, or you use Bing to quickly find the link to go to Chrome and install your, your Google Chrome. I mean, but... Yes, but, but in, exactly. When you type Google into Bing, then <laughs> exactly. you know. <laughs> exactly. And, and so... And so, but but what is interesting, and, and I mean, this is this is potentially you know extremely disruptive, is that Microsoft is is rolling out the Chat GTP uh, or GPT three equivalent onto Bing, so that when you search the internet, uh, it gives you answers. It doesn't gives you give you links. And so even just that, even just that, might in five years time be absolute household stuff for us. And we'll talk about. You remember back in the day when we used to Google things and go to websites? Now you just type stuff into Bing and it gives you an answer. And so who knows? I mean, and, and think of how incredibly disruptive that would be to how websites are funded, how advertising is done online. And so you're 100% right that in a world that is as fluid as we, we're currently living in, where you know the world changes in a decade completely, who knows what the following decade might hold? I would, however, say when it comes to investing, we always say you invest for the long term, right? And 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 trying to be clever, trying to time the markets and move in and out and 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 getting the calls right is really not what it's about. It is about having exposure to risk assets over time that pay you a premium to hold it. And remember those that are paying the premium, because someone has to pay it, right? There's no central authority that pays you for being invested. Someone actually pays you a premium over the long term to hold equities. And the ones that are paying it are the ones that are changing the allocations and focusing on the short term. The ones that earn it are the ones that stay invested for 10, 15, 20 years. They earn the premium. Yeah, that's a very fair comment. You know, unless you're a trader or a swing trader where you kind of, you know, eat what you kill, um, you know, sticking around in the long term means you get those upswings. I think you just have to be careful with what you buy. Obviously, when you're buying, you know, ETFs, you're buying a whole lot of things. It's very much a style thing. When you're doing single stocks, you've got to just keep an eye on it and be sure that the company you bought you know, still has a business in 10 years. I mean, case in point, you know, it's interesting talking about Microsoft and then Alphabet, which is Google's holding company. So I sold out of Alphabet recently because I think, you know, I've had some exposure to Google as a business owner in one of the other projects I'm involved in and how incredibly arrogant they are around advertising and they are ripe for disruption. And the big thing with AI, and you mentioned it, is it gives you answers, not links. Google, Google makes money from links. You know, that's all they do. That's actually all that is. You ask a question, Google gives you links, you pay to go there, and the person whose link that is probably paid Google something for that, or you land on a website and because you're viewing content, you get served adverts and they make money. AI takes both of those things out of the equation. And the reality is when something is trading, you know, on the assumption that it'll just grow forever, you don't need Google to disappear in order for Alphabet to become a pretty rough investment. You just need Microsoft to take, I don't know, 10% market share of search and that's a huge deal in Google's life. So I'm very bullish on Microsoft, my favorite company, actually. If I had to pick one to hold forever, it would be good old Microsoft. And yeah, I sold, I sold Alphabet. So it's, it's interesting to see how these things will change. And people assume it'll never change. I will always Google it. I, I might remind you, we used to BBM each other, you know, mid-2000s. And then we started WhatsApping each other. And when last did you see a BlackBerry? Listen, I, I still remember the days where we, what, what was, what was pre-BBM? Um, mix it. I mean, uh, no, look, I mean, the, yes. world, the world changes, changes on a dime. Um, I, I saw you sold your alphabet last week when, when Google fell 8% on that day, right? Was that you? Uh, 
<laughs> Listen, Nico, if I can move the Google price by 8%, <laughs> I would be doing different things with my life at 1 a.m. instead of writing about sins like I was last night after such a crazy day. I'd definitely be doing markets, but I'm not sure I'd be working quite that hard. Listen. Let me let me let me tell you that that was that was uh, that was impressive. But you have to be careful. It has a real impact on other people. <laughs> um, one one thing that I that I would say just to just to latch on to what what you've been saying is 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 the you know to to stress the point how important diversification is. And when I say diversification, I don't just mean in diversification. So holding more companies. Because um, you always look at, 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 a, at a portfolio or an index and you go, oh, look, there's 1,500 companies in there. So it must be well diversified. What I mean by diversification is true diversification. And, you know, just, just be sure, be mindful of the fact that if you're investing in the long term, invest in assets and, and, and building blocks that offer, that offer you that alternative return profile so that during times of market turmoil, something pays off in your portfolio and vice versa. And so... That is really what what we should maybe discuss as well. Is, is just this this concept of diversification and getting it right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, if you own Adobe, Nvidia, Microsoft, Apple, and Alphabet, you are not diversified. You hold a basket of tech stocks. That is not the same thing at all. But then you'll also see people making the joke around diversification as opposed to diversification. So the concentration versus diversification argument always comes up. I know for myself personally, I love using ETFs to kind of give you that broad market exposure and then do some stock picking around that ultimately. Um, and that's just a personal thing. I think a lot of people actually end up end up doing that. And ETFs are, you know, very useful. I'm not just saying that because this is a Satrix podcast. This is a reality. ETFs are very useful to achieve diversification. But even within ETFs, you know, if you own, I don't know, a, a JSC Aussie ETF and then you own Richmond and British American Tobacco and Nusbass, <laughs> you're not really diversified, are you? So the concept of diversification is an interesting one because we, we always say, you know, I mean, if, if your grandma asks you at a bry, so Coast, what is, what is diversification? You know, the standard, stock standard textbook answer is to not hold all your eggs in one basket. But that, that does the concept of diversification actually a bit of a disservice because we, we should actually be saying we should hold our eggs in uncorrelated or different baskets. So, you know, it's cold comfort if all your eggs were in different baskets, but on the same truck that overturned on the N1. I mean, that means all your eggs are now broke. That's a very good analogy. That really is. Yeah, we need to have different vehicles. So put some of your eggs on a truck, on a train, on a car, on a plane. You know, so, so for us, diversification should always be thought of as being the conduit that you use, the asset that you use to actually provide those returns. Equities certainly provide a very useful conduit for long-term uh, capital growth, but then you have other asset classes that provide distinct return profiles. Within those uh, baskets, you have to be diversified. That is the beauty of ETFs. It, it provides you with products or building blocks that are effectively well-diversified from an end perspective. But if you tell me, well, I have a diversified portfolio because I hold, uh, to your point, oh, the NASDAQ, the S&P 500, and uh, the Nikkei. Well, I can tell you for free, those are all three equity asset classes, and all of them have a high exposure to, to, to tech. So what you should really be doing is looking to combine different ETFs. And, and, and so, you know, you can, have, you can have one type of asset class, and combine that with global bonds, hold some global equities, and then also hold maybe another ETF that gives you a completely different return payoff profile. You know, we, for example, have an ETF that is a, a healthcare innovation ETF. I mean, that, that's, that's something that's, that's still company, that's still equity returns, 
But you can imagine that those equity returns are quite different from what you would get from an S&P 500. And then in the same vein, we also have a global feeder uh, infrastructure feeder ETF, which means you're now investing in infrastructure. So just by, by combining these different products, you're already getting m- much different return profiles. In fact, if you look at 2022, our global infrastructure ETF did really well in a time where all uh, equity markets had a downturn. I mean, this one still fell, but far less. And so what you see over time is combining different types of vehicles actually provide you proper diversification. So it's not only about looking at one portfolio and saying, oh, this one has 3,000 companies, so this is diversified. You, you need to look at it from a look-through perspective. So what am I getting when I'm invested in the MSCI world? And do I actually need an alternative as well? Do I maybe need to pair this with other vehicles or other ETFs or other uh, managers to, to give me something different uh, so that I don't have these periods of, of uh, you know concentrated pain? Because over the long term, those downturns actually hurt you quite a bit. So we're absolutely always strong advocates for, you know, having a diversified uh, exposure in your portfolio. And also at Satrix, we've always been cognizant of the importance of intermediaries when it comes to investing. And when I say intermediaries, I mean financial advisors that guide you in terms of what ETF vehicles to hold, for example, or how to build a portfolio that is well diversified. Uh, You know, while ETFs make it great and easy for you to get exposure, uh, it might be a good idea for you also to get that help, to, to, to get some guidance uh, in terms of what vehicles to hold with which. But in terms of starting off your investment journey, um, I, I still think ETFs are a fantastic vehicle to just get exposure and build that over time. You know, if, if you, if for example, if you take 10,000 Rand or 1,000 Rand, whatever you can afford, and every month you're investing that into different type of ETF vehicles and you build that over time, then, then if the market's correct, well, that's fine because this month you're buying. Uh, exposure to MSCI World at a bargain. If the market prices go up, well, that's great because you know your entire portfolio is now increasing in value. So, really, if if you look at it over a five-year period, cons- or, or frequent uh, contributions and building your your capital exposure is really the way to go. Um, but just make sure that your allocation itself is well diversified. Yeah, I mean, first thing I ever bought was a Satrix ETF. That's a fact. That's why it was it was really cool for me that uh, you know Satrix has come on board as a brand partner to GoSmell because that's where it started for me in the markets genuinely all those years ago. I, I love the analogy of not having all your eggs on the same truck. That's brilliant. That's exactly what it is. Um, gold is a bit like putting your eggs on a transnet chain. You know, it won't go anywhere, but it's quite safe. Um, that's basically <laughs> the the equivalent there. Very safe on a broken railway. Um, Nico, we're running out of time. There's one more thing I want to ask you, and I, I, there's lots of things I want to ask you, but clearly we're going to need to get you back on on Go Stories. Uh, that much is very clear. In terms of, and you've touched on it there, you know, using ETFs, and it, they are passive investments in terms of they track an underlying index. No one makes an active decision of like what's going on inside that index. You just track the thing. That's what makes it passive. But choosing which ETF to buy is very definitely an active decision and even more so in a tax-free savings account. So one of the cool things about a TFSA is, you know, you can own ETFs in it, but you can you can buy them, you can sell them, you can move them around. As long as you don't withdraw your money from your tax-free savings account, you're good. So you can actually do, if you want to have a crack at, you know, some style allocations and taking profit here and maybe buying stuff there when it's cheaper. And you make a very good point about being careful with doing that kind of thing over time. It's lovely when it works. It's very painful when it doesn't. Ask me who sold Alibaba in the middle of 2022. I'll tell you for free how much fun it is when you literally pick the bottom. It's incredible. That's obviously not an ETF, but it hurts. Uh, you know, your views on, on, I guess, just ETFs as an active 
It's an active investment choice into a passive instrument. Would you say that's an accurate statement? No, it's a perfect statement. But even even just the even just the term passive is, is something we we never use. Um, we call it indexation, um, and the reason being that you know you made the point that look ETFs are just passive investment vehicles because they track an index, but that index can be a vanilla index like a cap weighted top forty index. But that index can also be a, an actively designed index because index just means set of rules. We just follow a set of rules when you invest, but that set of rules can be determined actively or, or, or in a vanilla way. To give you an example of that, uh, we have a multi-factor strategy, which is an index, but we design the index, right? So we don't buy the index off the shelf or look at the market pricing. So in, in a sense, we construct the index that we track. So just be careful there when, you know, your listeners, when we talk about active versus passive, that's actually doing it a disservice because it should be active versus rules-based. And within rules-based, we have passive rules, if you like, or vanilla rules, and then we have more active rules or, you know, non-vanilla rules, which can include everything from style tilts, but also stuff like infrastructure or healthcare, which if you think about it, I mean, how you define something as being healthcare or being tech or being infrastructure, there's a lot of active decision-making there. Um, you know, I'll, I'll give you one example of that. If you look at, for example, Volkswagen, I mean, if you look at the fundamentals, if you come from Mars and you don't know the name and you look at the fundamentals, Volkswagen is effectively a financial services institution that has a side hustle of selling cars. So classifying that is something as simple as Volkswagen is very hard to do. Now, you can imagine how hard it is to classify a business that has more nuance and that it is not exactly clear. And so that's why we, for example, partner with BlackRock for our global feeder ETFs, because they have an incredible research team that looks to exactly how you define a company as being infrastructure or healthcare. They look on a look-through basis, they do all the hard work, and we have locally traded feeder ETFs that feed straight into those. And maybe at a, on, a, on a future podcast, we can actually unpack that a bit and, and look at that as an investment alternative. But those things are anything but passive. And so I take your point and I agree with you. It's a great vehicle. Um, and, and just don't think of it as always being passive and boring. There's actually a lot of value in ETFs. Yeah, I, that's really cool. I'm actually going to I'm gonna use that going forward because that's exactly right. It's indexation. It's not passive. That active versus passive debate, it's a narrative that kind of stuck in the market, but you're right. It's actually incorrect. So thank you. Uh, Nico, seriously, I think this has been a fantastic podcast. I've learned a lot. And I always think when I enjoy it and I've learned something, the listeners are going to feel exactly the same. I think this was a, a really, really fantastic experience. I'm quite jealous of your students, actually, at, at Stelly's. I, uh, I had some very good lectures in my life. I was lucky as well. But uh, I think to have a lecturer like you is a, is a blessing. So they are lucky, and I hope they know it. And if they read Ghost Mail as well, imagine how far they'll go between that and having you as a lecturer. I mean, that's got to be the right combo. Sky's the limit if they read your, your stuff, eh? Absolutely. <laughs> Nico, seriously, thank you so much. I know we're going to have you back on the show. Uh, there's so much I still want to tap into your mind for. People who want to engage with you, are you active on Twitter? Are you posting hashtag humbled on LinkedIn? Where do they find you? LinkedIn, absolutely. Email, but yeah, probably LinkedIn. Uh, there we go. There we go. No tweeting, it's all LinkedIn. You know, and I was just starting to like you and now you hit me with the no Twitter, only LinkedIn. And you saved it right for the end. This is a heartbreaker. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> to our listeners, thank you. To Satrix, thank you for this brand partnership and just for bringing these insights to uh, the Ghost Mail audience. It really is fantastic. Nico, thank you. I look forward to welcoming you back. All the best. Thanks. Satrix Investments PTY Limited is an approved financial services provider in terms of the Financial Advisory and Intermediary Services Act number 37 of 2002. Satrix Managers RF PTY Limited is a registered and approved manager in collective investment schemes in securities. 
The information in this podcast does not constitute financial advice in terms of phase. Consult your financial advisor before making any investment decision. Past performance is not indicative of future performance.